0: Hi, welcome back to HASSLE Talks. In September 2023, HASSLE was proud to sponsor the inaugural Retrofit and Repurpose Summit in Sydney on Gadigal Country. This one-day event brought together sustainability leaders with asset owners, investors, and sustainable building specialists to understand the opportunities and positive impacts for retrofit and repurpose strategies. Or, to put it more simply, how can we lower the environmental impact of our buildings and sustainably enhance our cities. This is something Hassel is already really involved in, and we're having so many more conversations with clients about these sorts of projects. Projects I know you, our listeners, are also really interested in hearing about. So why has this become such a big topic? With so many buildings sitting unoccupied in our cities, it doesn't make sense to simply demolish them, replace them with more efficient, sustainable buildings. It's not always cost-effective, And importantly, it doesn't fit with our aspirations to nurture a circular economy that minimizes the impact of building materials and construction processes on the environment. So, if we take those existing buildings and retrofit them, we can better meet our decarbonization goals, improve occupancy, drive investment, and regenerate our cities. There's a big opportunity here to make a difference to our cities and communities. I'm Jeff Morgan. I'm a principal at Hassel in the Sydney studio and I acknowledge the Gadigal people as the traditional custodians of the lands on which the summit and this podcast are recorded and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I'm really pleased to be able to share a recording from the panel event I took part in at the summit examining the value in the retrofit market. The panel was chaired by Alison Scotland, Executive Director of the Australian Sustainable Built Environment Council and I am grateful to the summit organisers, for allowing Hassel the opportunity to share the insights and inspiration from the event on Hassle Talks. We'll put a link so you can check out more of the panel events in the show notes. Enjoy the insights.
1: So the title of our panel session is called Change Levers: Finding New Value in Net Zero Retrofit and Reuse Market. Uh, as I call out your names, uh, panel members, would you mind coming up onto the stage? So we have Jeff Morgan, who is a principal at Hassle. We have Elham Monavari, um, who is the head of Green Star Strategic Delivery at the Green Building Council. Uh, We have Paul Corkill, who's the Executive Director of Policy, Programs and Industry Development at Solar Victoria. And we have Jono Cotti, Development Director of BILT. So thank you. Welcome to the stage, everyone. I might start with Jono first, if I may. What do you see the challenges and opportunities for for retrofit and net zero are in the current market?
2: Uh, Yeah, thanks. Uh, Yeah, I guess we're all here today because we're kind of really aware of the the challenges that we're facing in our industry, particularly um, regarding net zero and the buildings that we occupy. So, we hear some of the stats. You know, 80% of the buildings that, you know, are currently in our CBDs today will be here in by 2050, and we need to retrofit so a significant amount of them. So three to five percent of those buildings every year to be able to kind of meet with the commitments that we've actually made, um, you know, to ourselves and to the to the environment to kind of keep up with that. So breaking that down, so I'm focused on the commercial office sector particularly. That's sort of half a million square meters each year that we need to kind of retrofit as well. So that challenge is complete is really really significant. Um, because it is you know, a challenging problem to tackle, as, as a lot of you will be kind of aware, and how we kind of go about that um, is really kind of interesting. On the opportunity side, though, however, we're sort of in a really interesting point of the market at the moment with, um, you know, you, I'm sure all of you have read about the sort of challenges that the commercial office markets kind of, dealing with at the moment so it gives us you know an opportunity to kind of relook really at about how we've been kind of traditionally dealing with the problem of you know building knocking down buildings and building brand new ones where we have an opportunity to give these buildings their second and third lives as well um you know tenants are demanding you know sustainability you know from their um from the real estate that they occupy um, but they're also demanding a little bit more character and authenticity in the buildings that they kind of, you know, create as well. So rather than being part of larger, you know, glass towers, you know, p- particularly around the heritage items, you know, we're seeing in, in some of the buildings that we've produced in Sydney and substation 164 in Melbourne, we're, you know, doing an adaptive reuse of a, a heritage kind of wool store building into commercial office. But tenants really are sort of looking for that point of difference in that sort of you know in those kind of buildings so being able to give them um you know their second and third lives you know creates a real um opportunity to, for that embodied carbon you know which i think is a really sort of you know we're all sort of moved up the curve on the operational side of things and sustainability but the embodied carbon challenges is what we're sort of focused on
1: Beautiful. Thanks, Jono. And we'll get to that adaptive reuse um, part later. I think that's so fascinating. Um, but I'll go back to what you, you said earlier in, in the sense of the scale at which we need to do this. We need some sort of planning. We need some sort of transition. We need some sort of roadmap um, about what we need to do. Um, and it's a good segue to Elham because I know the Green Building Council have been you know, thought leaders in this space. Um, you produced your climate-positive roadmap. Um, you you know what needs to happen with our built environment. Did you want to give us a little bit of a understanding about what that means and what's involved?
3: Sure. This was something that we've been thinking about for a long time and we did think about back in 2018, which is when we first released the Climate Positive Roadmap. At the time, that roadmap, you know, it took a lot of consultation with industry, so a lot of it I think you probably think is a given now, you know, given how far we've come, but at the time... Was really trying to tackle a big problem, and really at the at the top of that was our Paris Agreement targets and identifying ways that the built environment needed to work towards meeting the Paris Agreement targets. So you know, really looking at the the highly efficient, fossil fuel free, built with lower upfront carbon emissions, um, fully powered by renewables and offset with nature. Again, these are this is, this is like a formula that you've become accustomed to. Um, but at the time it was definitely very new and let's call it groundbreaking. So that framework that was established has been really instrumental in the way that we as an organisation move forward with all of the rating tools. Um, The GBCA, as many of you in the room may or may not know, we're an organisation, we develop rating tools and we do certification and that certification is independent. So it's really important to be able to validate the claims made. Um, so, the, the Climate Positive Roadmap was really helpful in that it set up that framework but also started to embed it. It allowed us to find ways to try and incorporate it into all of the different rating tools that we have. So, starting off with the Buildings Rating Tool, which is obviously for new builds, but um, it's also been part of all of the subsequent rating tools that we've developed. For example, um, the Green Star Performance one, which is probably from when we talking about um, retrofit and repurpose, is a really important rating tool, but... Now we're moving into our fit-outs rating tool as well. And the whole concept of circular economy is going to be really fundamental to that particular rating tool. But as well as developing roadmaps, the GBCA and rating tools, the GBCA knows that we need to help industry to try and move towards that pathway as well. And we provide um, supportive documents that sit alongside that. And one that I think is a really good one for uh, a lot of people in the room to have a look at is the the practical guide, Uh, The different practical guides that we have so there are practical guides for the electrification for example of new buildings of existing buildings um, The practical guide for upfront carbon sort of emissions as well. So I think that practical guide is where we start to break down What needs to be done in a building to try and get it to um, incorporate some of the requirements and and the, the strategies that we've set in place
1: Beautiful. Absolutely. Because it's, you know, it's a
3: conflation of
1: everything. Um, if you're retrofitting a building, you know, you don't want to electrify before you have, you look at the thermal shell. So, you know, I think your guides are such a wonderful tool. And if, if anyone hasn't seen them, I I think you should definitely check them out because they are so useful. And so touching on the, the electrification, and I might um, jump to you, Paul, if I can. So, you know, um, the thing that's exciting about electrification, and especially household um, electrification, is that you know the consumer is is at the centre. So um, we, we've got a lot of collective experience on on the panel um, in supporting consumers to electrify. But um, could you provide a bit of your insight um, in in relation to your experience helping consumers electrify?
4: Yeah. Uh, hi, Alison. Hi, everybody. Uh, thanks for that. Um, Solar Victoria is an agency within the Department of Environment, uh, Energy, Environment and Climate Action within Victoria. And uh, I'm aware there's probably many people here from Victoria today. There's a very active conversation around uh, um, replacing gas in the home in Victoria. Uh, And what we've seen um, from our perspective from Solar Victoria is we've been running now for five years with the Solar Homes Program, which is our flagship uh, program, and we've seen um, over 260,000 Victorian households moved to put solar on the rooftop of their buildings. That brings um, the number of houses in Victoria to 600,000 that have got solar, and it's from within that cohort that we're seeing. Because we have um, the way that Solar Victoria delivers our program, we have um, really great data around customer, um, around what their motivators are, what what might, what they're doing next, and really significant move for those customers who are really primed on that electrification journey, and that's, which is really exciting. So we're seeing, um, uh, we also deliver a incentive for, um, for hot water, for energy efficient hot water, for heat pumps. Um, and um, in that program, which we've had significant uplift in customer interest in that in the last six months, largely about that as a result of that conversation around electrification, um, most uh, traditionally most um, um, uh, hot water and heating and cooling in the home, heating in the, in the home is delivered via um, a gas-powered appliance. So there's a big uh, challenge for us uh, with so much uh, of our carbon emissions coming from um, homes and and therefore from their use of gas. So that move to heat pumps, moving to electric appliances which are efficient and understanding that as a result of their, um, their own um, solar generation that's on their rooftop now and the ability to be able to think about that and improve their energy literacy as a result of having solar and be, be able to use that. Think about how they can use more of that solar um, for other appliances within the home, and, and it seems to be that hot water is um, the next cab off the ranks.
1: Beautiful. Um, that that sounds great. And and you know they can obviously see the benefits. Um, do you find you know not everyone is motivated by you know, an energy bill, Have you, are you finding anything particular that really helps a consumer make that jump? You know, what, what speaks to their, you know, heart?
4: Yeah, it, it's it's a really good question. Overwhelmingly, the primary motivator that we've seen over the five years of the program has been the cost. Um, and certainly, I think if anyone has um, dipped a toe into the solar industry, you would see that that industry is very much aligned to a payback period. Um, but we are starting to see that conversation broaden to other factors as well. Um, uh, household motivations around doing their bit for the environment is increasing significantly. Um, it, was, it was a few percent when we first started um, as a motivator. Um, that cost was that primary thing. But then also um, there's been more conversation around um, providing a, a home that's, more he- that's healthier, that's more comfortable to live in. Those sorts of factors are starting to um, uh, come up higher in terms of the motivators for people in terms of what they're doing, and I'm talking about in the retrofit space. So, um, in the new builds, it's um, it's, it's it's probably a, a bit of a different discussion now. Um, particularly, um, you know, Victoria's announced um, a ban on gas connections for new planning permits from next year, and that has, which is actually a small number of um, of buildings uh, for, for houses for next year, but and, and beyond. But it's actually definitely been. Um, you know, a lightning rod for a, a discussion further with the community around the role of um, uh, the role of gas in the home and also their investment in appliances that you know we know last for 10 or 20 years, and so that's certainly extended to things like um, using reverse cycle uh, air conditioners for heating in the home um, and induction cooking, those sorts of things, um, and also the, obviously the thermal envelope is part of the NCC 2022 as well. So yeah.
1: Beautiful. Thanks, Paul. And, and so taking that sort of um, theme of, of motivation, um, if we sort of look at another area of opportunity, um, perhaps more in our um, inner city office and, and, and residential building stock, um, it seems far too often that uh, underperforming assets are, are left to rot until someone comes along with the, the motivation or, or the plan to, to knock down and rebuild. Do you see this as an opportunity, Jeff?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I do. Um, I think as John pointed out, you know, we've got um, it's predicted that 80% of our buildings will will be built um, are already built uh, in 20 by 2050. Um, But I think also, um, in particular, over the past few years with the uh, the pandemic, um, there's been a lot of new opportunities emerging. Um, We're certainly seeing um, markets of underperforming assets being looked at much more critically now, um, both for the potential to remain as offices, but also to be adaptively reused as um, into apartments. Um, but in the office market, I think there's still really strong demand for quality buildings and quality precincts, um, and there's a lot of interest in it, trying to identify those opportunities um, to increase their value. I think in Sydney alone, we're currently working on four adaptive reuse projects at the moment, not, not including the adaptive reuse of the lands building with, with built, um, and we're seeing also strong interest from both domestic and um, international developers um, looking to uh, re- adaptively reuse their existing assets. Um, in the past year, much more compared to, to years previous. Um, in some of these early proposals, um, the planning authorities, much to their credit, are really starting to look at uh, ways to incentivize developers, potentially through either increased height or area, um, obviously within the bounds of design excellence and uh, local environmental impacts. But I also think that some of this interest around embodying carbon from their perspective um, is around looking to create narratives um, around their products and how do they sell these products. So, you know, obviously funny enough, having a strong narrative that will help you attract like-minded, socially conscious um, investors or tenants or buyers um, is a really strong way of of selling their product. Um, Also, I think Hassel's been really involved, uh, particularly down in Melbourne over the past few months in doing a bit of research that's got a lot lot of interest, um, looking at the um, commercial office market there and identifying opportunities to convert those um, those existing buildings into apartment buildings and that's something now that we're just getting underway with extending that research here to the Sydney market um, and, but to, trying to understand the particular differences in land values and planning regulations um, but I think there'll be something really compelling to share there as well.
1: That's so exciting you know if you think about you know pre-co- uh, pre-COVID versus post-COVID um, you know working from home is becoming more of a norm so you know what to do with all those empty office buildings that seems like such a logical Um, pathway isn't it and and with with that inside sort of you know touching on the narrative that you were sort of talking about um Oh, you're sort of talking about um you know the opportunities in relations to to red flags and green flags can you um talk a bit more about what that means for you in terms of the opportunities you see
2: uh yeah so I actually uh, met with the Hassel guys a few times about their piece of work that they've kind of done. It's really kind of interesting because you, you, you start with a big data set of all the, the buildings in the CBD and it slowly kind of narrows down by um, certain characteristics that make it sort of you know possible or impossible to kind of retrofit these buildings as well. So um, I think the really kind of obvious ones are even outside the building form in itself, like having a built form located in good locations, you know, near amenity, public transport, part of communities and where people really want to be is really kind of important for being able to kind of put to several uses in that kind of place as well. And then going to the built form, you know, there's a lot of kind of technical kind of challenges as well, but having good floor to ceiling heights, the structures are main part of what we can reuse and, and main part of any of this sort of embodied carbon, these kind of buildings, so having those kind of robust structures the right floor to ceiling heights um, are really kind of important and it kind of goes to a wider kind of conversation about sustainability and looking at sort of i love working with the heritage buildings those buildings that have been there for you know 100 years plus and we're we're working on a couple of at the moment but they're built really solidly and well and are able to be. Reused in many purposes, the old bank buildings, and um, you know, into commercial offices, the lands build and education buildings down the city into hotel, and I think it's a an, an interesting discussion that we can start to have about maybe you know building buildings not just for the minimal sort of redundancy you know that we kind of have now, but allowing them to think about how they would look like in their second and third lives before we already build them. So. Thinking about the retrofitting opportunities in the future as well is is kind of really what um, we're sort of focused on, as well as you know how we then retrofit those kind of existing buildings. Because we're aware of the challenges of the of the projects that don't have the right structural integrity, or have the wrong facade, or have you know smaller floor to ceiling heights that were built for a very specific purpose, and and it's a bit of a, a missed opportunity there as well.
1: Yeah, so, um, you know, thinking of of sort of risky building typologies, you know, heritage buildings are beautiful and, you know, that's if you build beautiful buildings, of course, people want to keep them around. What about, you know, the the glass towers, uh, you know, are they a a building typology that you see as potentially risky in, in terms of the second and third life?
2: Yeah, I think so. I think, um, you know, uh, we we need to be really kind of careful about, you know, the, those type of sort of buildings and, you know, they can be reused, but they are harder. Um, you know, the work done around the residential space, not commercial buildings, not all of them, and it's quite a, a smaller percentage of them are able to be reused into to residential. Um, some of them because of the planning rules, but some of them because of the actual amenity and the, the you know, the specific nature that they're kind of built with. So I think you know, um, some of those typologies are the ones that are most kinda of challenging to, to be able to retrofit.
1: So, going back um, to Elham and and, and back to the the thought leadership of of the GBCA, um, you know, we're we're talking about heritage, we're talking about um, reuse and and repurposing and and second and third lives. Um, You've been researching or the GBCA has been researching circular economy opportunities for quite some time. Um, Can you give us a summary of what you've found and, and
3: where the opportunities lie there? Interestingly, (laughs) pre-COVID, things were better from a circular economy point of view. Uh, Yes, I got the stats from a colleague. Um, And yes, it was like 9%, let's call it circular economy. Now it's gone down to 7%. Um, So I think that's an interesting um, shift post-COVID because one would have thought it would have gone in reverse given the advancements in our thinking um, and all the rest of it but um, yes for the for the GBCA we've tried to you know circular economy is definitely an area that we need to continue to grow into I don't think we have the full answers yet Um, so at some point there's going to no doubt be a roadmap for circular economy but not yet. However, having said that, we have been doing a lot of work with organisations like the Better Buildings Partnership. Uh, I think there was like a summit or something held a few weeks ago, uh, as well as releasing the Circular Economy Innovation Challenge into Green Start Buildings. And as I said, um, with the new rating tool, we're finding the same thing with the, um, I suppose like what we're hearing, the engagement that that we're doing, and just the level of excitement that people have currently for, we don't even have the um, discussion paper out for the fit outs rating tool, but there's so much buzz about it that we're like, wow, okay. It is the last of the the suite that we've been um, developing and we deliberately had it last because of COVID. And we just really wanted to sit and think about what does the future of work, I suppose, look like. Um, but yeah, so, th- so that, that will definitely be like a common theme within that particular rating tool. But I mean, the, the main sort of research that we've found, we've you know, we've tried to embed it into the rating tools where we can, and, and certainly into the product space as well, um, where we've looked at the Responsible Products Framework, which looks at different materials, and you know, incentivizing those that are reusable, um, recyclable, that are easy to deconstruct as well. So I suppose like the evolution of Green Star has changed over time as well, whereas previously we used to have a you know, design for disassembly kind of credit. It was very sort of like singular. You know There was the concrete credit, there was the, the steel credit. We've tried to be more holistic in, in our viewpoint and, um, and certainly working a lot with the manufacturers directly as well to try and get that sort of thinking moving and shifting as well. Beautiful. Thanks, Elham. Um, when you mentioned the fit out,
1: um, I, I sort of thought about Jeff and, and Hassel. You know, you've lived um, the, the adaptive reuse um, in Hassel, you know, seeing your offices and and seeing the journey um, in your offices about what you've done to, to repurpose, even down to your, your furniture. Um, I think that's such a beautiful story. So um, did you want to sort of touch on that or, um, you know, uh, maybe even looking at that as an opportunity or a challenge to to really realise this um, reuse across, you know, at, at a broad scale?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, you know, our office really is, as you point out, like a living example. Um, and that, that kind of fact is pointed out to, you know, the, to people who visit us, but also to our staff. Um, and we have just recently um, undertaken... Uh, a a bit of a refresh of our studio after the kind of first seven or eight years of being there. Um, and yeah, we reused and repurposed a lot of furniture, moved it around, chopped it up, um, you know, adapted it as best we could. Obviously budgets were tight for, all, for us all, but I think it was a really clear and easy lesson um, for our, you know, people working with us to say that, you know, this is the way you do it. Um, so that certainly has been, um, you know, a really great um, tool to use very directly for our own people.
1: Um, Did you find any challenges with it, Um, you know, have you learnt anything through that process that um, could inspire, you know, people in the room today?
0: Um, Well, actually I was kind of more thinking about uh, the work that we're doing with with Built on the Lands building. Um, That's been an incredibly challenging building but incredibly rewarding uh, process. It's, you know, as Johnna was saying, it's built incredibly well but when you start to upgrade these buildings to current codes and standards, not, not quite well enough, so actually figuring out how you um, provide the necessary um, stru- structural um, integrity to the certain kind of concrete jack arches, which aren't really concrete and have no reinforcing, but have been there for 150 years. Um, how you provide fire ratings to, the certain, uh, to certain elements. Um, you know, It's been an um, incredibly technical challenge and I've got to give my hat off to Jono and his team. Um, it's been a really um, immense pleasure working with them, very professional, kind of going through um, each sort of challenge that we face working through it one by one, getting in the necessary experts, consulting with who we need to consult with. And um, yeah, we've just kind of kicked off the last phase. We've got about another two years to go, um, maybe a bit more to, um, to complete, um, but it's yeah, really starting to take place now. And I think it's gonna be a real joy for, you know, for the rest of the city to go into a building that was otherwise um, really not open to the public and see it properly for the first time.
1: That's so beautiful. I, and I love it. It's, it's, you know, going back to this whole collaboration, it's such a team sport, you know, you can achieve so much, you know, working together and, and, and really bringing in all parts of, of the, the building, you know, um, chain, you know, the, um, to, to really try and find solutions that are, are going to um, mean something for people and, and building occupants. So, yeah, that, that's fantastic. Going into the, you know, adaptive reuse question, um, you know, back to electric homes, you know, a lot of this is, is work and, and people with budgets. You know, it's, it's wonderful that they can enjoy um, these beautiful um, projects. But, you know, equity and access are just as important. And, and you know, we, we need to be aware of this with our um, energy transition, with our electrification. Um, Paul, can you help us understand or, or give us some guidance to make sure there's, there's nobody left out on, on the way?
4: Uh, thanks, Alison. I can provide some guidance. This is a really tricky problem. It's certainly occupying our minds uh, at the moment. Particularly noting that where we are in a, the kind of maturity of the program that we're now deli- delivering, we're five years in. Um, solar. Um, the, the the top twenty suburbs that have received solar rebates from us over the first five years are that are uh, all outer growth ring suburbs of Melbourne. They're. Um, low-hanging fruit when it comes to detached homes, um, suitable for solar, large rooftops, um, um, modern switchboards, all the rest of it, they're, they're the low-hanging fruit for that industry, but they have, so there's probably two points for me to make. One the, um, one is how do we get an industry who is um, geared up and able to tackle the tricky problems, and that, it, despite the fact that that has been a low-hanging fruit, has helped actually to create um, a really strong supply chain um, we 've been able to uh, work with industry on quality standards on um, competencies of installers those sorts of things and they are um, you know looking for the next thing um, in, in, t- in terms of that um, and so we continue to want, want to work with industry I think in terms of those capabilities and seeing more not just a discrete product like a solar system but also how you um, um, have a relationship a longer term relationship with a household. So that sees uh, opportunities to do further upgrades either as part of a deep retrofit up front if they've got the financial wherewithal to do that or if it's a progressive thing that happens over a few years and that they're given that advice that comes um, you know, from uh, an industry who they actually have a very high rating of trust in um, to be able to do that. The second point I think though is around getting the incentives right to, 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 um, to get through some of those barriers and disincentives. Um, um, And uh, we're really excited. Last week, our minister and and the federal minister announced a new program um, to tackle um, rooftop solar for people who live in apartment um, uh, buildings. Um, That will see an increase of our incentive, a doubling of our incentive, um, to $2,800 per apartment. Um, And that's um, so that is traditionally harder to reach, but there are um, uh, but there are uh, solutions available that do enable those people to, and we've actually put some of them in place already, um, that will put, um, uh, that, that do um, create you know, opportunities for access to uh, renewable energy. And then again, there's that that same starting of the conversation, that vehicle around electrification, um, um, thermal envelope, and c- continuing to do things with, with those households. Um, and then the other, I think, is um, opportunities in the social housing space as well. There's similarly an announcement last week around a big um, increase to Victoria's energy efficiency and social housing program. That's really exciting as well, because it will see us be able to shift to a a deeper retrofit of those homes, which will be great for the beneficiaries of those homes who can least afford to do that. In fact, they can't, because the homes are owned by the the state, but um, certainly um, it's out of reach for them. Uh, But also it's creating an industry who has the capability to be able to do that, and hopefully we could see ways to leverage that to provide um, you know, um, and more commercial opportunities that um, you know more um, of, of the households can access.
1: That's beautiful and, and great lessons for the rest of the country. I, I think, um, you know, learning from, say, the pilots to, to figure out, you know, what works at scale, um, you know, we could really learn from from what um, the Victorian government's done, especially via Solar Victoria. And that, that's probably a good segue to my final question before we go to the audience. And um, it's just a, a quick-fire question to, to each of the panel members, and I might start with you, Paul. Um, if you could pick one lever um, to pull to achieve that broad scale impact you know across Australia based on on what you you 've learned, what would it be? Uh,
4: okay, well wow. um, look, I think we've, we're, we're actively having a conversation with the community about the need to do upgrades to their homes and to be able to and and so I think we are unpacking that with the community, and that's, that's really going along well. Um, we will. We're using, inse- like, from Solar Victoria's point of view, we've got incentives that are really helping to enable that conversation, build capability, build, um, um, you know, a, a much higher percentage of homes that are more comfortable, that are more energy efficient, and and are generating their own power. There is a point though where I think we're going to have to have a bit more of a conversation around regulation. Um, and I think so. I, I think that's. I, pro- I guess I'd probably say my one wish is just we we'll probably need to bring that forward now. It's time to start having that conversation around, uh, even if it's into the future and it's a long-term um, uh, consideration that this, this is coming, but um, that it will, will become ubiquitous, that you'll live in an energy-efficient home that is comfortable um, and that is doing its bit for the environment. Yeah.
1: Yeah, signals, very important. Neighbours is fabulous at signals. I love it. Um, And Jeff, if you had a magic wand, what would it be?
0: Well, I I think we need to start really placing a value on on embodied carbon. Um, You know, it's true that I think the the greenest building is the one that's already built. And at the moment, you know, our kind of current decision-making frameworks really only prioritize cost, time, and and commercial risk. And in my work with Mecla, chairing the Aluminium Working Group, we've seen how what the effect that's had on industry, you know, where, where... so much of what we make and produce comes from overseas and our own kind of own local domestic capability and capacities are really, in some, some areas, are teetering on non existent So, yeah, I think we've got to start to look at carbon sitting equal to alongside all the other metrics that we traditionally have considered.
3: Hear, hear. And Elham? Hmm, good question. I've been listening to the other panellists and I'm thinking, OK, we've ticked off regulation, we've ticked off... Um, you know, having value. Uh, I would say, in addition to what you, the um, the other panelists have said, uh, I think it's important to be able to also have. A, so I mean, I think the neighbours. Um, sort of uh, what was presented earlier was really great because a common way of being able to measure these things and verifying them is really important as well. Because without that, then it's hard to really measure the scale of the impact and to demonstrate that. Um, you know, things have been delivered. Obviously having the finance sector really driving that as well is really important and that's certainly what we've found through the work that we've done Um, and having that sort of recognition by different financial institutions is really important because it's been able to really help us scale up um, a lot of the program and certainly I think has been helpful in driving a lot of the demand that we're seeing for rating tools like Green Star. So yeah, having the um, comparability and measurability and then having the finance sector be able to again, another form of signalling, I suppose, to say that this is really important. Um, I think those two together can be very impactful.
1: Absolutely, thank you. And last but not least, Jono, what, what do you think? Uh,
2: yeah, so I think, look, I've been talking really high level today and I think for the rest of the day, the, the exciting part is being able to listen to some more theoretical and real case studies on, on the retrofit. Um, but some of these are only possible and possible at large scale if we both incentivise and change some of our sort of planning regulations as well. So we really need to, and all of us have an opportunity to do this, um, push on our authorities to create incentives and flexibility around buildings that are, are, are working with adaptive reuse projects and are working with that embodied carbon framework as well. At the moment there's almost a bit of a penalty by how hard they are to kind of do compared to new builds that we need to like really continue to push our authorities, particularly around planning um, and our councils and governments about how we can incentivise people to kind of reuse these existing buildings. So I'm doing some work with the Property Council of Australia at the moment, for example, and we're really sort of focused on that. But I think everybody in their own industry has an opportunity to kind of push where they can to kind of help sort of change that as well.
1: Beautiful. Oh, that's um, music to my ears. I I think you've you've all hit the nail on the head. Um, What I might do now is... um Uh, ask the audience if you have any questions for our panel members in relation to, uh, oh, we've covered a whole range of topics, but you know, adaptive reuse, um, electrification, the journey. We have Sam over here. Um, Oh, and, oh, we've got one microphone, so we'll go Stanford first and then Sam, thank you.
2: Hi, I've got the mic. Hi, Stanford Harrison from the the Commonwealth. Um, Just a question. Uh, when talking about uh, you know, retrofits and adaptive re- uh, reuse, uh, you talked about you know, land values, practical considerations, planning regulations. Um, one, of the, uh, you know, one of the important uh, regulatory tools in the landscape is to do with the National Construction Code. And of course, everybody you know, knows it applies to new construction. Also applies to renovations and refurbishments in a different way in each state, and it's applied in different ways. And I'm really interested in uh, how important is this, and how much of a factor is it in retrofit and adaptive research, reuse considerations? Uh, I can take that one. Um, as as a builder and developer, I think that's where we can add a lot of value. Um, you, you're right. It, it's there's. On a retrofit scale, um, the NCC particular is um, can be interpreted a few different kind of ways, particularly dealing with the existing structures as well. So um, we would like to try and get in really early, and that's the advantage of having the in-house building capability when we're looking at kind of developments to kind of you know flag those ideas with the authorities, our certifiers, um, our you know all of our consultants to work out know those kind of challenges and problems kind of early on but it's something that probably needs you know some yeah, potential to have um, a bit more of sort of framework about it about where the kind of line starts and stops when you're working with adaptive reuse kind of projects for that because uh, sometimes it's up it's a bit of an interpretation of the regulations rather than that but it's, it, it's a very good point because it's something that we encounter in these projects um, every day.
0: You'd be well aware of what's happening in other parts of the world and and the kind of advocacy that's going on to um Embed um, kind of embodying carbon, body carbon calculations um, and, um, for planning submissions and, and within the building code. So I think that's something. Hopefully, we'll start to see here more. And uh, you know, my colleagues uh, in the UK, as part of Acan, you know, the kind of advocacy has been sort of quite tire- tireless um, in lobbying into government to make the case for this. So I like to think that um, I probably shouldn't say this, but it's typically we'll kind of follow second suit and um, kind of take their lead. But yeah, I think it's certainly coming
1: we'll go go to Sam. You've got a microphone. I do. Thanks very much, Alison. Sam Pert from A uh, Quick question for Elham. I think um, we've got we've had some really good perspectives from kind of people wearing different hats. But Elham, the Green Building Council has members that sit all around a project table or portfolio table. Yeah. Um, And I just wanted to ask you what you think may need to change in the level of collaboration or the role of each of those hats. So, we've got developers, builders, designers, engineers, um, investors, the lot. What do you think needs to change in that dynamic to create true new value um, to elevate to where we need to get to from a retrofit and existing buildings perspective?
3: Mm, Yes. Um, What needs to change, I think... Having those conversations earlier, um, I think that's the critical component. So, you talked about the fact that you get in early. So, it means that you can really start to uh, identify the issues and also identify the potential as well. And I think that's the main sort of ingredient that it's often a matter of time and bringing in the right people in at the right time and having those conversations that are uh, also quite specific as well because... A lot of this works in in relation to you know retrofit and repurpose. You you kind of need to have that end goal in mind in in some ways. So you you need to know what it is that you're trying to create, but also um, so having I guess the client there and the potential tenants as well. So really just having the right people in the room at the right time, I think, is the main issue because often what happens, uh, and I'm not saying this is what happens with your projects, but um, a lot of these sort of decisions happen quite later on where there's been a lot of missed opportunities. So sort of going back to that circular economy example, circular economy is going to be really hard if a lot of um, design elements have already been locked in um, for someone to then come in and start talking about like, hey, what can we do? Let's try and repurpose X, Y, and Z. So I think that's the main thing that comes to mind.
5: Hello, uh, Joe Carton here from Built. Um, quick one for O. and Jeff. Um, you know, I'm the biggest champion for reusing buildings, I think it's incredibly important. Um, but I've just come from the property councils, uh, designing buildings that work for everyone breakfast. And, uh, Naz Campanella was there at Liesl Tesh, Liesl Holtesh's uh, parliamentary secretary for inclusivity. And she challenged everyone to say, if I came to your house, could my wheelchair fit into your bathroom? Could I get into your bathroom and use your bathroom? And I gotta say, in my house, it wouldn't happen, and I have a child with disabilities. So how do we manage to cater for people with disabilities whilst re repurposing, retrofitting existing buildings that weren't designed for that in a way that financially sacks up? And what barriers need to be removed in order to design buildings that do work for everyone?
0: It's a very good and challenging question. Um, it's certainly been something that we've had to work, for, work very closely with our DDA consultant on, on the lands building. Um, you know, the fact that um, we're kind of trying to balance that equity and access with the kind of heritage aspects of the building um, so having um, one dedicated entry um, uh, for that kind of equitable access which then leads straight into a clear circulation path to use the lifts which are obviously being added into the building you know unfortunately the the, the challenges around um providing access to some of the more grand entries where we currently rise up uh, eight to twelve stairs Was just too much to kind of uh, of an impact to provide access to each of the four different entries along that building Um, but we did work very hard in terms of making sure that um, each room type um, was was accessible Um, uh, yes in some cases doorways did need to be widened there's lots of complications around um, providing auto openers and things like that so it was a really rigorous process and it's actually still going on Um, just this week we've been looking at all the uh, uh, threshold details at each doorway because the, the, the floor level is going to change so what's the kind of rise and it's an incredibly detailed thing that has ramifications all through the design but it's, it's, it's part of it and we've been really enjoying it.
1: Thank you panel members, really wonderful.